Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. I hope you guys all had the most fantastic, spectacular Halloween weekend. I know I did and I'm actually, I'm still trying to recover from all the candy I ate. If you are a John and Jane Doe Patreon member, I also hope you received your box of Halloween treats in the mail. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you're going to want to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Serial Napper for all of the details. Speaking of Patreons, I have a new member to say hey hey to. Shout out to Rose Blakely. Thank you so much for your support. You're the best and I super appreciate you. I'm so thankful for folks like you who allow me to bring you new true crime content each week. I'm just, I'm beyond grateful. So hey Rose, hey. We're headed to Canada for tonight's story. I remember I was working in Ottawa when I heard of the following case. In 2009, four female bodies were found in a vehicle that had been sunken in the water of the Kingston Mills locks. Three of the women were sisters, and one was not DNA-related to the other three. So how did it get there, and who was responsible? Was it some sort of accident, or something far more sinister, something that plagues strictly religious families around the world. Let's dive into the details. Before we jump in, tonight's episode is sponsored by one of my favorite sponsors of all time, GarageStoresWithAZ.com. Their online shop has a massive, I'm talking massive, stock of products and accessories so that you can personalize, enhance, and jazz up your vehicle. They have everything from car accessories, repair tools, organizers, something to decorate your car with, everything you could possibly need. Honestly, they have the coolest vehicle accessories you never even knew existed. But now that you do know, you're gonna want them, trust me. That's how I feel when I browse their online store. Also, a bonus, they provide free four-day shipping in the U.S. They also do free returns and they have a money-back guarantee so that you can feel confident in your purchase. But one of my absolute favorite things about their online shop is that they have product reviews. I love reading reviews before I buy anything. So if you're interested in an item, you can check out the reviews to see if the quality and usefulness kind of matches your expectations. 
Check out garagestoreswithaz.com for all of your vehicle accessory needs. And make sure you stay tuned halfway through tonight's episode because I made a list of some of my favorite items that they have on their website. And I'm going to fill you in on all the details. That's garagestoreswithaz.com. I also have their link in my show notes to make it easy. All right, let's jump in. The events of our story all revolve around the Shafia family, so let's start there. Their beginnings started in Afghanistan, before the family would move to Canada much later in life. The head of the household was husband and later father, Muhammad Shafia, a very traditional and very strictly religious Muslim man. While he only had a grade 6 education, Muhammad was a very intelligent and savvy individual. He began working full-time when he was just 18 years old, and he started his entrepreneurial career with a $10,000 loan from his grandfather, which he used to open a Panasonic radio franchise. He was incredibly successful in his endeavors, and he was quite wealthy, especially for Afghanistan. He owned a house in Kabul along with two additional apartments. In 1979, he married a woman named Rona, which was through an arrangement between their parents. So this was an arranged marriage. Initially, the pair seemed to be quite happy together. But when the two tried desperately to start a family, Rona would soon find out that she simply medically could not have children. This would cause a lot of friction between the husband and wife, often even resulting in violence. Rona kept a diary in which she talked about how angry her husband would become with her. She said that he made her feel useless, less than a woman because she couldn't have children. He would degrade her and insult her cooking and cleaning skills. And she believed this all really stemmed from the fact that she couldn't give him a family. So, reluctantly, she suggested that he take up a second wife, which is completely legal and actually kind of common in Afghanistan. So, he did. Mohammed married a woman named Tuba Yaya in 1989, and Rona even helped to pick her out. The three of them shared a household together, and initially everything was sort of working well. It wasn't long before Tuba became pregnant, and the family quickly grew. Mohammed would have seven children with Tuba, two sons and five daughters, and it was a blessing just as much as it would become a curse to the first wife, Rona. It's true that Rona loved each of those seven babies like they were her own, and she played a very active role in raising them, but it also created this unfair dynamic with Tuba acting as if she was the only true wife to Mohammed because she could give him children, and treating Rona like she was just the housemaid. According to Rona and what was written in her journal, Tuba would often tell Rona that she wasn't a wife at all, just a slave. Mohammed also remained physically violent towards Rona while sparing Tuba from his angry tendencies, so there was a definite imbalance here. In 1992, the Shafia family left Afghanistan to move to Pakistan. There was a civil war outbreak in Afghanistan involving the Taliban, so it became no longer safe to stay in their home country. From Pakistan, the Shafia family relocated to Dubai, then Australia, and then back to Dubai. It was in Dubai that Mohammed Shafia became a really wealthy man. I mean, he was already wealthy, but he became a lot more richer in Dubai. 
He operated his own used car dealership, and he made a small fortune investing in real estate. He actually had enough money to participate in a program that the province of Quebec created to bring more business to the area. He would be granted permanent residence and Canadian citizenship by investing $2 million into a strip mall in Laval, which is a city just outside of Montreal. His second wife, Tuba, and their seven children would accompany him to Quebec, Canada, where they rented out an apartment and also bought a piece of beautiful land for $200,000 that they would use to build a mini mansion on. About five months after moving to Canada, Mohamed Shafia asked immigration for a sponsorship for Rona, stating that she was his cousin and would be hired as their nanny. Of course, he couldn't tell immigration that this was actually his first wife. The family would have likely been deported right back to Afghanistan. Polygamy in Canada is illegal. And so, Rona also moved to Canada from Afghanistan under the guise of being a cousin. And they kept their marriage a secret. And it wasn't actually all that difficult because even though she lived in their home, she was never really treated as a wife. She was often beaten by her husband and badly mistreated by the second wife, completely bullied. She was only given $50 a month as an allowance and she wasn't allowed to use the house phone. So she would use that money to buy calling cards. She would go to pay phones and use the calling cards to keep in touch with her family. She told them all about the abuse and how she was fearful that her husband was going to kill her. She also told them that all of her documentation, including her passport, was pretty much being held hostage. She couldn't even attempt to leave if she wanted to. And she had tried begging her husband for a divorce, but he refused. In contrast, the second wife, Tuba, had much more freedom. She had her driver's license and a car. She was allowed to drive, and she did drive wherever she wanted to be. She wasn't required to wear a hijab, unlike Rona, and Mohammed seemed to treat her very kindly. She was also adamant that she was the only wife who would share her husband's bed. So, clearly, she thought her position in the household was much different from Rona, and apparently, it was. Now, as for the children, there are three that we don't know anything about because there's been a publication ban for their protection and their privacy, so we don't know their names or ages or anything like that. But we do know of three daughters, Zainab Shafia, who was 19, Sahar Shafia, 17, Giti Shafia, 13 years old, and one son named Hamed Mohammed Shafia, who was 18 years old when all of this happened back in 2009. Now let's talk a little bit more about who these people were. Zainab was your typical teenage girl. This beauty absolutely loved Britney Spears and all things pop culture. She really liked to experiment with clothing and fashion, and she'd often take photos of herself in different outfits, back when selfies were just gaining popularity. She was attending an adult high school where she would meet a young man named Amar, who was from Pakistan. The pair connected quite quickly. It was actually Amar who made the first move, writing Zainab a note saying that he wanted to get to know her better and asking her to wear white the next day if she agreed. And she did. But of course, coming from her strict religious family, 
she wasn't allowed to date, so the pair would have to sneak time together in the library. And they actually had to be extra careful because Zainab's younger brother, Hamed, attended the same school and he would often act as a spy for their father. If he were to see her doing anything perceived as wrong or inappropriate, he would report directly back to Mohammed. At one point, the Shafia parents were away on a business trip in Dubai, and her younger brother, Hamed, was left in charge of the household, which is kind of funny in itself, isn't it? Zainab is a year older than Hamed, and yet he was left in charge because he was the eldest male. Zainab was kind of sick of all of the rules, and so she decided to sneak her boyfriend into the apartment just to hang out. But Hamed caught him, and as punishment, it was Hamed that decided that Zainab would no longer be allowed to go to school or to see her boyfriend ever again. Yep, her younger brother was able to make those decisions, and it was followed through. Zainab was kept home and out of school for nearly a year before she was finally allowed to take night classes with her brother, you know, so her brother could keep an eye on her. But like I said, Zainab was getting sick of constantly being controlled. She was nearly an adult at 19 years old. So after a while of not being able to talk to Amar, she decided to send him an email in secret. That's one thing that her parents didn't really bother to monitor. The pair decided to meet up at the mall for a few hours where they hung out and Zainab vented all of her frustrations. She talked about how her father was keeping her confined to the house and how she planned to run away. According to Omar, she told me her dad was mad at her for what she did. That's why they took her out of school. It took some time for them to forgive her and so she could go back to school. She said that she stayed in her room all day, coming out only for meals to avoid getting mean looks from her father and brother. During this meetup, she also asked Amar if he would marry her, and Amar in return asked her to wait a few weeks. He didn't have an apartment or much money, so she said that she would run away with or without him, and he decided he loved her and he'd help her to get away from her controlling family. So, Zainab went home, she packed all of her things, and Amar came by later to pick her up. That's when her brother Hamed called 911 to report his sister as missing. Here is a short clip from that call. Can you family? Yeah. Is that your... Uh, sister. Your sister. How old is she? Uh, she's 19. What Hamed didn't realize was that another child in the house also called 911 because they were afraid of what their father was going to do. Police came to the house and the children told them exactly what was going on. All of the emotional and physical abuse, the confinement of them within the house and not allowing them to go to school. But then the father came home and, oh, what do you know? Their stories changed. And even though the social worker wrote down that it did appear that the children lived in a reign of terror, ultimately, it was decided that no intervention should happen. This would be just one of several opportunities where Child Protective Services could have helped these children, but instead did nothing. 
Meanwhile, police followed up on the information about the missing teenager, and it was determined that Zainab was allowed to stay with Amar because she was 19 years old. So police called back the Shafia family and basically told them to let her be and leave her alone. That's when her parents decided to turn to manipulation. They got in contact with Zainab and told her that they would pay for the couple's wedding if she just came home. They didn't want her living with him until after they were married, but they would give her the money for the wedding. And so she agreed. And two weeks later, there was a wedding, but hardly anyone came because neither of the families were happy about the marriage. And while it seemed like they would finally get to be together after just getting married, Zeneb had a very emotional conversation with her family, and she decided that she must tell Amar that they needed to divorce. It appeared that her family had convinced her that they could not continue the marriage. All of this happened just six weeks before she was murdered. Even though the wedding would be annulled, Mohammed, who was away on business in Dubai, was still apparently horrified that the marriage seemingly happened at all. It was reported that he called Zainab a whore and a black snake, saying, She's dirty. She's a curse to me. She is a dirty woman. If I was there, I would have killed her. I love to travel. From the bustling city of Tokyo to the beaches of Thailand, there's nothing I enjoy more than getting the chance to see the world and experience different cultures firsthand. But the language barrier, it can be an issue. Sure, you can use an app on your phone, but things often get lost in translation. I truly believe that learning at least some of the language of the land that you're visiting is the first step to ensuring a smooth and meaningful experience. That's why I'm excited about Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language that you want to learn. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Japanese, Spanish, German, Korean, Italian, and more. Learning a new language can be tough especially with all of the different nuances. But Rosetta Stone is designed to help you speak like a local, so you'll feel confident in what you're saying. I don't know how many times I've been traveling to a new country and struggled to get my point across just because I wasn't properly pronouncing something that I thought I knew, which is why I love Rosetta Stone's built-in true accent feature, which helps you master your accent. They also have convenient desktop and app options so you can learn on the go. Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership includes all 25 languages. So once you're finished learning one language, you can start on another. Whether you're an avid traveler like me or just want to impress your friends with a new skill, it's a steal of a deal at 50% off. That's right. 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. 
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Now let's talk about the middle sister, 17-year-old Sahar, who would also be found drowned in the vehicle at the bottom of the Kingston Locks. Reportedly, she was even more rebellious than Zainab. She attended a local high school, with her mother dropping her off and picking her up each day so that she only went straight to and from school. No stopping anywhere else along the way and definitely no going to friends' houses. In the morning, Sahar would leave for school with a headscarf. However, she would remove it once she got to school. She would also change from her modest clothing into more revealing clothing. Nothing crazy, just what was typical in teen fashion at the time. She wanted to live a modern Western life. Sahar was biologically Tuba's daughter. However, 40 days after giving birth to her, Tuba gave her to Rona as a gift, and she would raise Sahar as her daughter. She really would have had a bright future if she was allowed to live. She wanted to be a gynecologist when she grew up, which was inspired by the lack of health care that was accessible for women in Afghanistan. She was really forward-thinking. She also had a boyfriend, who of course she kept secret, a young man named Ricardo Sanchez, who was an immigrant from Honduras. And while they tried very hard to keep their romance quiet, it was not to be. In one incident, when they were spotted at a restaurant together, the couple was approached by brother Hamed. He walked right up to them and asked, are you my sister's boyfriend? Thankfully, Ricardo was quick thinking and he said no. He put his arm around another one of the girls that was present at the table and said that this girl was actually the one he was dating. But Hamed didn't buy it, and he reported this news back to their father, who was furious. Sahar really struggled at home, and she was brave enough to reach out for help at school. She told her teachers of how she was being emotionally and physically abused at home and that there were family members constantly spying on her, ready to report every move she made to her father. She became so depressed at one point that she tried to complete suicide. She mixed poison with water and she drank it. Rona was devastated over the attempt. However, Tuba would say she could just go to hell and that everyone should just let her kill herself. The school called Child Protective Services over all of the allegations, and there was a meeting held. However, the meeting included both Sahar and her father, so of course she retracted all of her statements out of complete fear. And so, the file was closed. This was just another time where there could have been an intervention and nothing was done. Sahar began losing a very noticeable amount of weight. She was missing a ton of school, and she even fainted in class, which resulted in one last call to Child Protective Services. But the woman on the other line said since she was 17 and a half, they wouldn't even entertain the complaint. Her teachers really tried everything to get Child Protective Services to pay attention, but they just wouldn't. The final victim in our story is Giti, who was the youngest to be killed at only 13 years old. She very much looked up to Sahar, and she was hopeful that someday Sahar would get married and take her with her, moving far, far away from the rest of the Shafia family. 
Reportedly, she was a bit of a handful. She had never lived in Afghanistan, so she didn't have all of those traditions in that same strict culture. She was probably the most rebellious of all the sisters. While her parents tried to lock her down, she really began acting out. She was skipping school, she was shoplifting, she was wearing clothing that was deemed inappropriate, and she was completely failing her classes. Giti was the one who had called 911 after her sister Zainab ran away because she was terrified about how her father was going to react. And when police had arrived to the home that day, she straight up told them that they were all being abused and that her father had pulled her hair and struck her face. And yet nothing was done because when the father came home, all of the other children changed their stories out of fear. Not Giti, though. She stayed true to what she was saying, never wavering, even though she knew that there would likely be consequences for telling the truth. Giti so badly wanted to be placed in a foster home, any way to get out of the Shafia house and away from her controlling father. However, the detective couldn't gather enough evidence to support a charge, and the file was closed, and Giti stayed in that home until her death. I think I've been able to paint you a picture of what kind of family dynamic we have here. So now we can get into the crime that was committed all in the name of supposed honor. In June of 2009, the Shafia family decided to take a family vacation to Niagara Falls, Ontario. They took two vehicles for the trip, a black Nissan Sentra that they had literally just purchased the day before, and a silver Lexus SUV, which was kind of strange considering they had a van that could fit the whole family. On the way, they stopped into Mont-Laurier, Quebec to spend the night, and they continued on their way to Ontario, passing through Kingston for a short period of time before arriving in Niagara Falls, where they stayed from June 25th to June 29th. Things actually seemed kind of wonderful on this trip. The father, Mohammed Shafia, was acting much differently than he typically did. He was being very kind and friendly and upbeat. The girls seemed to be having fun. They took a ton of photos in their hotel room and at the various tourist attractions that they visited. Everyone appeared to be having a wonderful time. They checked out of their hotel in Niagara Falls on June 29th and began their journey home over the next day. Through cell phone records, it was discovered that they drove through the Toronto area, they stopped at a McDonald's, and they continued on to Belleville, Ontario in the early hours of the following morning. It was around 1.50 a.m. on June 30th. Hamed and Mohammed showed up at the Kingston East Motel, requesting two rooms to stay in. The clerk at the hotel asked how many people would be staying in the rooms, and initially they said six, and then they corrected themselves, saying maybe nine, but eventually they settled on six people. Remember, there were ten family members who had embarked on this family vacation, so where were the other four? Now, we don't actually know when this horrific plan of murder happened. We only have cell phone records and testimony from the hotel clerk, but I think it's pretty reasonable to say that it's likely the murders had been carried out around this point. At approximately 8.30 a.m. on June 30th, 2009, the following morning, the Nissan was discovered by Parks Canada staff at the bottom of the Kingston Mills locks. Inside the car were the bodies of Zainab, Sahar, Giti, and Rona. The water wasn't very deep, 
the car was submerged in only two meters of water, so it was pretty much vertical. The car ignition was off and the front seats were fully reclined. No one in the car was wearing a seatbelt, however, all of the seatbelts had been buckled in. Zainab was found in the front passenger seat, her face slumped over, her fingernails painted a light shade of blue. She was wearing a black cardigan that was on backwards. Sahar was in the rear of the vehicle. She was wearing a pair of jeans and a sleeveless top. Her belly button was pierced, which of course she wasn't supposed to have, and her nails were polished in two different colors, purple on the fingers and black on the toes. Giti's lifeless body was floating over the driver's seat. She had one arm wrapped around the headrest. Now, she also had a navel ring underneath her brown shirt. Rona was found slouched in the middle back seat. She was wearing a blue shirt, three pairs of earrings, and six gold bangles. And while the women's bodies were being pulled from the submerged vehicle one by one, Across town, there were three individuals who showed up at the police station to report them missing. The father, Mohammed Shafia, mother, Tuba, and brother, Hamed. According to the three of them, they were on their way home from their vacation in Niagara Falls, and they decided to stop into a hotel in Kingston for the night on their way home. It was here that they said they believed that Zainab and the other three women decided to just to take off on a joyride in the Nissan. Yep, in the middle of the night, they probably just took the keys and drove off and nobody could find them. So they were there to make a missing persons report. At first, the police generally believed them and they documented the car being in the water as a sudden death investigation. When they informed the three of them that they had found the women's bodies, there was like no emotion at all, but they didn't really have anything to go on, so they just put it down as a sudden death investigation. But then it became clear to the police that it was likely something much more sinister. Hamed reported that he had had an accident in the Lexus in a parking lot, resulting in damage to the front of his vehicle. He called his insurance company and he called 911 to report the damage. The taillight assembly on the rear driver's side of the Nissan, the one that had been submerged, was smashed. So police became suspicious that maybe it was the Lexus that was involved in an incident with the Nissan. They believed that possibly the Lexus was used to ram the Nissan into the water. But more evidence was needed. This was just a hunch they had. They had to back it up. So they put wiretaps in the family vehicles to see if they could gather any more information regarding what really happened. And what they heard on those wiretaps was horrific. One example was the father speaking about Sahar. He said, Even if they come back to life a hundred times, if I have a cleaver in my hand, I will cut her in pieces, not once, but a hundred times, as they acted that cruel towards you and me. For the love of God, what had we done to them? What excess had we done to them? What excess had we committed that they undressed themselves in front of boys? He also said, may the devil shit on their graves. So clearly, not a grieving father by any means. Everything captured on this wiretap was more than enough to take their phones and computers and search the home. 
Police discovered that someone, who they believed to be Brother Hamed, had used a laptop found in the home to search online for different bodies of water in the weeks leading to the incident. Then, just the day before the car was found, there was a Google search for where to commit murder. Police also discovered Rona's diary, which thoroughly detailed all of the abuse and control that was happening in the family. It was very clear that things were not right in the house, and in their father's eyes, the girls had dishonored themselves and their family. And so, police believed that this was a case of what is known as honor killing, which happens most often in the Middle East, North Africa, and some parts of South Asia. And it's much more common than you think. Approximately 5,000 women and young girls are murdered through an honor killing every single year. Police believed that Mohammed, Tuba, and their son, Hamed, had killed all four women as part of an honor killing. So they were arrested and charged with four counts of first-degree murder. Of course, they all denied it, sticking with their story that the women must have just taken the keys and gone on some joyride that evening and maybe accidentally drove into the water. Even during the trial, Mohammed spoke terribly about his murdered daughters, calling them whores that deserved to die because of their actions. And yet, he would never admit that he was the one who killed them. The forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsies on the girls determined that they were drowned, although he couldn't definitively say how or where the drowning had occurred. So it couldn't be determined if the women were drowned before having their vehicle pushed into the water or not. It wasn't all that deep, the water, so it's absolutely possible that they may have been drowned beforehand. Or perhaps they were rendered unconscious and then pushed into the water, in which case it would have taken only about 14 minutes to drown and die. They didn't find any substances in their systems, so we do know that they weren't drugged before going into the water. Three years after the murders, on January 29, 2012, after 15 hours of deliberation, a jury found each of the three defendants guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. Each was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. When they are released, Mohammed Shafia will be in his early 80s. His wife, Tuba, will be 64, and their son, Hamed, will be middle-aged, which seems incredibly unfair. But all three will be deported back to Afghanistan when and if they're released from prison. And so, even with all of the calls made, the adults notified, the warning signs seen, the Child Protective Services called— in the end, nothing mattered because no actual action was taken to save these women, and none of the three who killed them have any shame or regret for their actions. Right to the bitter end, they have remained self-righteous in what they did. They've denied that they did any sort of killing, but they seem to think that them dead is the right thing. It's, it's crazy. The only positive here is that this case has brought more attention to the barbaric act of honor killings, so hopefully these threats can more easily be identified and prevented. Keep your eyes open and watch out for the women in your life. That's it for me tonight. I'd like to once again thank our sponsor. Make sure you check out Garage Stores with a Z.com for all of your vehicle accessory needs. They have a huge selection, free four-day shipping within the U.S., 
buyer reviews and a no hassle return policy. So check out their link in my show notes. As for me, if you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young Serial Napper and that's all one word. If you'd like to become a Patreon and unlock some bonuses, including ad-free episodes and other little perks, visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper. Until next time, stay safe out there. Bye. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.